Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we're planning to help industry fuel switch to hydrogen. And when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Visit equinor.co.uk. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Our supporters are distressed and disappointed by recent events, and I share their feelings, said Oliver Dowden, the Conservative Party chairman, as he resigned in the early hours of Friday morning. We cannot carry on with business as usual. Somebody must take responsibility. Well, that somebody, needless to say, was never going to be Boris Johnson. Not really his style, as you might have noticed but there is no doubt at whose door the Tory party's crushing defeats in the Wakefield and Tiverton by-elections should actually be laid. Ford, Richard John, Liberal Democrats, 22,537. The defeat in Tiverton was quite simply the worst by-election result in British history. A true blue Tory seat in the south of England with an enormous 24,000-strong majority swinging dramatically to the triumphant Lib Dems. And I do hereby declare that the said Simon Robert Lightwood is duly elected for the Wakefield constituency. Wakefield, meanwhile, was part of that famous red wall of traditional Labour seats across the north, which turned decisively blue, or so it seemed, in 2019. That general election landslide feels very distant now, of course. But at the time, it looked like a seismic rewriting of the electoral map. Boris Johnson's very personal brand of conservatism, if you can even call it conservatism, reaching into parts of the country that others could not reach. Boris Johnson has promised to repay the trust of voters after leading the Conservatives to an extraordinary election victory. We will work round the clock to repay your trust. The Prime Minister in that post-election period looked untouchable. A divisive figure, for sure, but hugely popular among his power base in these suddenly marginal seats. And there was no sign of that changing throughout 2020, or most of 2021, the year Johnson won his own big by-election victory. We've seen times where he was so popular that almost nothing could land on him. 
This is the pollster, James Johnson, formerly head of polling at 10 Downing Street under Theresa May. The high point is that moment after the Hartlepool by-election win when he walked down that promenade, was met by a giant inflatable version of himself in May 2021. The Conservatives had won big where they'd not won before. A colossal win in Hartlepool for the Conservatives and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's sort of personal popularity was very, very strong. Voters credited him with the vaccine rollout. Um, They thought he'd done a good job throughout the pandemic um, and they saw him as taking tough decisions and although not always being the most politically correct, uh, although not even always being the most trustworthy, um, as somebody that was strong and could get things done. It's a mandate for us to continue to deliver. That sight of an all-powerful Boris Johnson winning a Red Wall by-election against Labour, just 80 miles from Wakefield, up in Hartlepool, was just 13 months ago. As we saw on Thursday night, the picture is, well, kind of different now. Boris Johnson has clearly been horribly damaged by the Partygate scandal and is evidently not the guaranteed vote winner he once was. There have been several body-blow moments since the Daily Mirror first broke the story last November. But according to James Johnson, the key shift came with the leak in January of that email sent out during lockdown by the Prime Minister's private secretary, Martin Reynolds. In his email, Martin Reynolds wrote... Hi all. After what has been an incredibly busy period, it'd be nice to make the most of the lovely weather and have some socially distanced drinks in the number 10 garden this evening. Please join us from 6pm and bring your own booze. That, I think, was the moment that the public thought that this was definitive proof that these parties were happening in number 10. I went down to Stroud and up to Bolton in the immediate aftermath of that email coming out and the fury about Boris Johnson was really, really, really significant and it was not just a flash, it was lasting. The Conservative voters and the Leave voters who uh, once did view him as trustworthy no longer do, almost by a margin of two to one. In the focus groups, you just get hostility that was never there before. You get the word liar used frequently. They say that he's taken them for fools. Um, They say that he doesn't care. you, I don't do what I tell you. I don't do what I tell you. The anger has erupted in public too, at football matches. At the darts. Blistering start from Noppet. The boil. And even at the Queen's Jubilee celebrations at St Paul's. My sense is, is that no, this is not recoverable. When you ask about Boris Johnson, the focus groups, It's not getting any better. In February and in March, when he had a lot of his Conservative MPs publicly behind him, when he was being praised to high heavens by the most popular man on earth in President Zelensky, actually his popularity deep down did not shift. So my question is, what shifts the dial for him? I think this is Boris Johnson's, you know, nothing has changed moment for Theresa May. It's his snap election for Gordon Brown, his Iraq war for Tony Blair. It's not just one focus group, it's not just a couple. It's pretty much every single one we've done between January and now that tell that very consistent story about a Prime Minister whose, whose reputation has, has, has fallen away uh, from underneath him. Now, before we all get carried away here, it's worth remembering that serving governments lose by-elections all the time, that the next general election is probably two full years away, and that this PM's legendary greased piglet escape act has got him out of plenty of tight scrapes before. What's really interesting to me, though, as James Johnson alluded to, is that there's nothing unique about any of this. 
The strange truth is the British public have turned on every Prime Minister of the last 40-odd years, and with a vitriol reserved for few others in public life. Still, Margaret Thatcher's legacy is debated with seething anger and venom. Still, Tony Blair is haunted by the shadow of Iraq. John Major, Gordon Brown, Theresa May were practically hounded from office. And David Cameron has barely dared peek his head out of his 30 grand shepherd's hut since his great Brexit gamble went wrong. Why does this keep happening? How do these obviously hugely capable people who have soared to the very top of the tree end up as hate figures for huge sections of society? Is there something peculiarly British about the way we build these politicians up and then knock them down? And what does it feel like to watch it happen at close quarters, in real time? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at why Britain turns so brutally on its leaders, and whether it's a pattern set to be repeated forevermore. So sometimes, the ideas for these episodes come to me late at night, or in the shower, or running for a train. One or two have been suggested by colleagues, one by a mate from home. Cheers, Nick. One even by some random bloke who accosted me at a drinks party at Tory conference and said an episode on the Maastricht rebels was long overdue. And he was right. But this one, this week, I'm not going to lie, was inspired by, borrowed from, shamelessly ripped off maybe, from a magazine article I read a couple of weeks back. Maybe you read it too. Writing in The Atlantic about Boris Johnson's plummeting popularity a few days after the PM had been booed at the Queen's Jubilee, the journalist Tom McTague noted how frequently British Prime Ministers have been, in his words, driven from office in a wave of public hatred, horribly warped and disfigured in the process. Contrasting the vitriol aimed at our political leaders with the public's widespread respect for the Queen, McTague noted memorably... Britain today is a country where religion has been replaced with a kind of state Shintoism in which the monarch is raised in exultation while her chief ministers are ritually sacrificed. It's a striking image from a journalist who's probably spent more time up close with Boris Johnson, studying and charting his rollercoaster premiership the past three years, than any other. I think the ups and downs have been really strange. This is Tom. When I was in number 10, talking to him and travelling with him to Hartlepool. He was genuinely really popular. There was a giant sort of Boris balloon. There was people coming out into the streets thanking him for what he'd done in the pandemic. You know, and in some senses, this was always a little bit, like, incongruous. You know, you kind of thought, has he really done at all well in the pandemic? Um, Maybe the the vaccines, people will seem genuinely quite... Um, you know, thankful for. But then it suddenly just dropped off a cliff. What's interesting as well is that Boris Johnson, to me, he was always seen as having this sort of superpower of his popularity. You know, he was just different to other politicians. You know, people smiled when they saw him and it just felt like he always got away with everything and that would never change. He was almost an anti-politician. He was able to laugh at himself and by becoming the joke, he kind of... Uh, inured himself to the usual criticism that these politicians try to show that they're better than the previous guy. You know, that they're a, they're, they're a good, ordinary person. They can be trusted. They're not as sleazy or as heartless as the, as the previous 
prime minister or, or leader of the opposition or whatever it is, Boris is there on Have I Got News For You, just being mocked by everybody and just sort of scratching his head and laughing with it and almost acknowledging it. And by doing that, how can you poke fun at somebody for claiming that they're better than everybody else when he clearly doesn't and he, he clearly didn't? And yet, once he became prime minister and once he was in a situation where it required serious leadership, difficult decisions and all the rest, that lack of seriousness, I think, then started to cost him. Did you get the sense when you were watching him in those happier days being mobbed by crowds and so on, do you think that popularity was important to him? Do you think he enjoyed it? Yeah, I think so. I remember being with him in Wolverhampton. We'd gone from one place in the West Midlands and we'd jumped in a car and we'd sort of, you go at this sort of tremendous speed through the streets because he's got the motorcycle outriders and that. And it's always, you know, it's a quite exciting thing to buzz around. And they go from place to place and they jump out and spend half an hour shaking hands, walking through a town and then they're bundled back into a car and then they're taken off to a pub and then they they go in and have, you know, a few sips of a pint, shake a few more people's hands and move on. And I remember listening to him in the pub uh, and he was again being sort of treated as a celebrity. And he mentioned to Andy Street, I think it was, how the atmosphere had felt really good. And it's true, it had felt good. You could see him going through the crowd and obviously kind of feeding off that energy. And he sort of was, was clearly processing it and reporting it back. I mean, you imagine what his reaction would be now if he tried the same the same thing. It just would be nowhere near that. And I'm sure he knows that. And, uh, you know, that is fundamentally, that is difficult for a politician. They go in for affirmation that they are... Um, you know, an important person um, that they're liked. And it, it. I think you watch every prime minister go through this, um, the sense that they are hated in their country. And it's very difficult for them. You know, you look at Blair after, after Iraq and during the inquiries, he looks at a haunted person. Um, Theresa May after the Grenfell Tower, you know, when she was being uh, pilloried, you know, given awful abuse. So I think this is something that all politicians struggle with. I don't know what the answer is, but you think back to all of our prime ministers since Thatcher. Now, Thatcher is one that, that seems somewhat different. She seems to have slightly reveled in her unpopularity among certain parts of the population. She almost thought it was a kind of affirmation that she was doing something of worth, of importance, that if you were liked, just generally liked, without any strong feelings, then you weren't actually doing your job. Your job was to make difficult decisions that would annoy people. Margaret Thatcher, of course, had been an increasingly divisive figure throughout her premiership. But there was clearly one moment, one policy actually, which seemed to tip her into the depths of true widespread unpopularity, in the minds at least, of her Tory MPs. The government is about to tear up the present system of domestic rates and replace it with the new community charge. As policies go, the community charge, that's the poll tax to you and me, was a political disaster of historic proportions. And one which Thatcher pressed on with despite every indicator. Protests, street violence, full-scale riots, suggesting it really wasn't going down too well with the public. The rioting began when police tried to clear Whitehall after demonstrators refused to move from the entrance to Downing Street. 
But after more than a decade in office and with three big election victories under her belt, Thatcher either didn't appreciate or just didn't care about the way the public mood was shifting against her. The rates were the most unfair and unpopular tax of all and they are now being replaced by a fairer tax which in time will prove very much better. Inside number 10, there was a huge amount of optimism and a feeling that she would survive. And I think it's very easy to kind of believe your own propaganda. This is Caroline Slowcock, who served as Thatcher's private secretary in Downing Street in the final years of her premiership. When the poll tax riots happened, which was a few months before the final sort of leadership challenge. She had the uh, police commissioners in to talk about the riots and um, she focused on uh, on whether they could have a different kind of petrol cap to stop um, protesters from setting them alight. Uh, you know, she focused down on the detail rather than really focusing uh, on the big picture, which was that the poll tax was enormously unpopular and she had to do something about it. To a degree, Thatcher was let down by those closest to her. But famously headstrong and absolutely convinced that what she was doing was right, would Thatcher ever have changed tack? I think it is certainly the case that you know, leaders don't necessarily get told the blunt truths. But um, at the point when she had the first leadership challenge, the man who was leading her leadership campaign, George Younger, And the deputy chief whip did tell her in pretty blunt terms that some things needed to change. As Tristan Garrell Jones put it, the assassins will be out for you within a year. And he was absolutely right. But she didn't listen. I mean, she obviously heard the words, but she didn't take it on board. And in a way, it was inevitable that she wouldn't because she wasn't going to fundamentally change who she was. And, uh, you know, the very qualities that had served her so well over her political career were the sorts of qualities which eventually helped to bring her down, you know, that kind of determination in the, in the face of uh, conflict, um, you know, the, that massive self-belief that she had, plus the fact that she uh, focused, you know, more and more on just working hard and being conscientious and doing the job rather than schmoozing and making friends in the party. You know, these qualities actually sort of in the end did her a great disservice and I think that's often the way with leaders in, in, in trouble, that uh, you know, the very qualities that in some ways uh, arguably made them great are the qualities that finally bring them down. But Thatcher was almost unique in this sense that she simply never saw the end coming. For every prime minister who's followed her, with the possible exception of David Cameron, who seemed to believe throughout the Brexit campaign that he was going to win, a cold realisation grew upon them that they were no longer the much-loved leader they had once been and that their time in office was therefore likely coming to a close. So what does that feel like? What's it like to helplessly watch your popularity and your support just slipping away and being replaced with something very much uglier indeed? Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question from Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor? We believe so. That's because when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Our H2H Saltem project is planning to bring hydrogen power to the Humber, the UK's most carbon-intensive industrial region. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. It's kind of hard to remember this now, but there was once a strange and distant time way back in, well, early 2017, actually, when Theresa May, Theresa May, was seen as a great British Prime Minister. Together, we, the Conservative Party, can build a better Britain. Thank you. Theresa May has the overwhelming support of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. Brexit means Brexit, and we are going to make a success of it. The Article 50 process is now underway, and in accordance with the wishes of the British people, the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. The polling was clear. The first 10 or so months in government she'd had as PM, she was an enormously popular person. This is Paul Harrison, Theresa May's press secretary between 2017 and 2019. She's very steadfast, she's very diligent, she's big on detail, and she has a sense of duty, I think, that people respect, even if they disagree with her policy prescriptions. And all of those things have always been true. I think they were particularly applicable at that time where we were in a period of uncertainty, people needed answers, wanted to sort of chart a new way forward. You know, a prime minister had taken the gamble of his electoral life and lost and resigned pretty well straight away so you can see why that sort of need for for stability and experience and competence was kind of called for before he joined downing street full-time harrison had been a tory staffer on the disastrous 2017 election campaign supporting the pm and her inner circle with media briefings and advice that campaign was incredibly presidential You know, it was based on her qualities, her insight, her ability, and as an insight into just how popular she was at at certain stages there. You know, we were doing a kind of Q&A where we talked to the campaign leadership about what are the questions you're getting from journalists. And there came a point where people were hankering after the manifesto. What's going to be in it? What's going to be out? It's a moment of big speculation. You have to try and you have to come up with an answer. And the answer that we were given was Theresa May will decide what's in the manifesto. So if X or Y cabinet minister said, you know, one thing that I'd like to see is or, you know, people were sort of sneakily briefing off the record about their pet projects. It was just no 
Theresa May will decide what's in the manifesto. That is, of course, not how a manifesto is written uh, and it's not how a political campaign works. But it's kind of striking that at the time that was seen as the right answer. You know, sort of, this is all about her and, and her judgment. Thank you very much. Today, as we face this critical election for our country, I launch my manifesto for Britain's future. Come with me as I lead Britain. Strengthen my hand as I fight for Britain and stand with me as I deliver for Britain. How quickly things can change. When the manifesto landed, it was, of course, a dud. The headline measure being a deeply unpopular social care policy. Tory MPs and the right-wing press were in uproar. After a weekend of disastrous headlines, even the Financial Times branded her policy a dementia tax. May decided under enormous pressure to rewrite the whole thing, just five days after announcing the policy to much fanfare. This must be the first time in modern history that a party's actually broken a manifesto policy before the election. I set out in my manifesto the challenges that we need to address as a government. You're just left in this completely invidious position where you either, you turn on your manifesto, huge deal, you know, virtually unprecedented, or you kind of continue down the line of advocating something that is clearly unpopular in a way that you didn't really expect. The business of frontline politics actually is not about glamour. It's about agonising small percentage decisions But that is about the most agonising during an election campaign, one that I can think of or remember, because you just know that there's no good outcome. Even worse than the U-turn itself, to my mind at least, was that famous moment the following Monday where May took to a stage in North Wales to tell incredulous journalists who'd just been briefed on the New Look policy that in fact there'd been no U-turn at all. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. The moment that crystallised it for me was that speech on the Monday after the social care policy when the U-turn had happened and then the TV journalists were asking questions and she was standing on stage saying nothing had changed and it just wasn't credible and you could see it wasn't credible because everybody knew something had changed and there were impartial you know, BBC journalists almost laughing at her saying, you can't be saying this. What was that like to watch as a press person on the team? Nothing has changed. It sort of <laughs> was unofficially banned as a phrase in Downing Street when I later worked there. It was problematic. It was a moment. And I think we all fell for her in the office watching on because there's the general essence of your campaign, which is kind of trust me over this other guy. I'm a constant and I'm reliable. And the price of ditching what turned out to be a very unpopular, albeit extremely well-intentioned policy, we're still talking about social care today, right? It's a huge problem in our society, uh, was to give up that central tenet of the campaign. I feel like Theresa May's popularity never really recovered from that. Why did the public turn on her over those errors versus all the different errors she probably made at different times? It was a collection of things that meant that the election just didn't go anywhere near as well as anybody had, had hoped for. And then it sort of, I think, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because on the night of the actual result, once we'd seen firstly the exit poll and then we'd seen the indications that it was right, it wasn't an aberration and, you know, we really were in a situation where we didn't have a majority anymore and had gone backwards. And what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party 
no, they don't have an overall majority at this stage. You know, it was kind of the atmosphere was just kind of, I, I don't really know how to describe it. It was just black as pitch. And that was in part because everybody realized the same thing, which is that that loss of authority, I think that set in train the ultimate outcome because, you know, short of fighting another election and winning a big majority, the debates of that subsequent two years were really hamstrung over the fact that we didn't have the majority that we needed to push her vision of what the future should be through. And, you know, so at the moment, the numbers evaporated. Everything else kind of went with it. You know, authority went with it. An amount of credibility went with it. You obviously worked very, very close with her in the the, the two years after that happened. Um, Did you get a sense that, you know, she felt that personally i mean it must be such a weird on a human level to be so popular in the country and then so unpopular very quickly i can't imagine the emotions of just trying to deal with that on a, on a human level one of the things about her that is sort of really nice is that she doesn't she doesn't have a huge ego and she doesn't reduce things to kind of questions of self so you know i genuinely think and i kind of have always thought that she's motivated by the public interest and I didn't see that change but I mean yeah it's it's tough because I think she wasn't she wasn't really comfortable with the type of campaign that she was being asked to fight uh that kind of the focus is all on me it's uh as I say it's it it was very presidential I don't think she was comfortable with that and that reinforces the the way you feel about a mistake afterwards if you if you are a bit uncomfortable about something and maybe don't take all the steps to address it that makes it harder to deal with when you're living with the consequences. But but no, I mean, I suppose one of the other things people say in difficult situations that keeping busy is a good thing. And, you know, you can't doubt like, her workload during that, those two years was absolutely both like ferocious and astonishing. And so, you know, I think that that probably helped. I guess it's hard to measure the true impact of this sort of thing on the human being beneath the politician. But for what it's worth, those working with Gordon Brown in Downing Street when the wheels were coming off his premiership in the late 2000s insist that he too, while hating seeing the power slipping away from him, was relatively unaffected by the public battering he received. I think all politicians have to, if you go into politics, you have to take the rough with the smooth. This is the Labour MP, Jonathan Ashworth, a former Downing Street advisor to Brown, who I interviewed for this podcast a couple of weeks ago. That's political life. Don't go into politics if you don't want to be um, <laughs> criticised. You saw, you know, Gordon Brown's poll ratings just tank and tank and tank through those final sort of months in office. That must have been really difficult to see when you've worked for this guy and presumably really respected this guy for such a long time. Oh, I mean, I mean immensely. And, you know, Gordon is a, a, a remains a great friend. I speak to him regularly. Look, it, it was it was difficult times. We we had been in government since 1997. It, you know, it was 13 years. I think there were times that come along when the public feel it is time for a change. And it, we'd had a global economic crash. But you know what? Everybody wrote us off going into the 2010 general election. People are saying Cameron was going to get a landslide. And actually, Gordon, through his uh, tenacity and his refusal to give up, denied Cameron a majority in that election campaign. There were seats that we held in 2010, which we've now lost, 
There were seats that we narrowly lost in 2010, which now have massive Tory majorities. But I think that just shows you that, that there was a there was still a respect for Gordon Brown in the 2010 election. Mm, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure I remember a great deal of love for Gordon Brown by the end. But what about the biggest fall from grace of them all? What about Tony Blair? I mean, few Prime Ministers have ever been more popular than Blair was after his landslide election victory in 1997. And he kept it going too, with another landslide just as big four years later. Tony Blair has made history as the first ever Labour Prime Minister to win two general elections with a landslide overall majority. And the public, remember, were even supportive of the Iraq war at its outset, despite the mass protests as it got underway. Yet opposition grew and grew and grew. From the left, the right, from the radical to the uncommitted, they came. And there is one terrorist in this world that the world needs to be aware of, and his name is Tony Blair, the world's worst terrorist. Iraq is now remembered essentially as Britain's Vietnam, and Blair today finds himself one of the least popular prime ministers of recent times. What a fall from grace. It must have weighed so heavily upon him, mustn't it? He always took the criticism, not just as part of the job, but as a validation of our country as a great democracy, one in which whoever you are, you can have your view and you can express it uh, without fear or favour. This is John McTurnan, who was Blair's political secretary in Downing Street during the latter years of his premiership. I think Tony always took the view, uh, I'll be judged by history, um, but that'll be out of my control and I shouldn't try and shape it. And in the end, you know, the balance will be... Uh, I suspect it will be between the Good Friday Agreement uh, and the Iraq War, both of which are conflicts, both of which are, in a sense, huge foreign policy issues, uh, and both of which have huge domestic impact as well. And so probably, you know, there's something about Tony which is similar to Margaret Thatcher, both dominant uh, political figures, both won stunning elections for their parties, which... In, a, in, in sequence have never been equaled, um, and both of whom came to a defining moment, which is true to who they were. The poll tax was absolutely true to Margaret Thatcher. That's what defined her and, and, and turned her. The minor strike defined her at the outset uh, for many people. Politicians like uh, who get to be Prime Minister in the end define themselves in a way um, that is true to their character, and that then defines their relationship with the voters and their popularity. And we've seen that playing out with the string you know, of Cameron, May and Johnson. So there's never really a surprise. Um, uh, in the surprise is the moment, the surprise isn't the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister never does something that's not true to their character. What is surprising to me is that when I look at polling of how popular former Prime Ministers are, the ones that are still with us, Tony Blair is low down in that list. You know, he is by, you know, as much as we can measure these things, you know, markedly less popular than many of his successors who had appeared to have achieved a lot less, certainly were in power for a lot less time. Why do you think that is? I think that hugely successful leaders cast a very long shadow on their own parties as well as on the country. And that ever since Tony stopped being Prime Minister... Every Labour leader has defined themselves against Tony, not against the previous Labour leader. You know, Gordon, I'm not Tony. Ed Miliband, I'm not Tony. 
Jeremy Corbyn. I'm definitely not Tony. And now Keir Starmer. Do you know what? I think I probably am Tony. Um, and it's the fact that if the party discourse is always the leader orienting towards the figure, the last major figure, and you saw it with the Tory party in opposition, that they weren't trying to define themselves against Tony Blair. They're trying to define themselves in relationship to Margaret Thatcher. In politics, you can sometimes win too well, and Tony maybe won too well that he became the only figure in Labour history, the only figure against which to find himself. Nobody wants to define themselves in relationship to Harold Wilson because they can't quite work out what was the meaning of his, of his, of his period in government, um, even though he won four out of five elections. If you're a big figure in your party, then you become a definitional figure too. So I think, you know, there's a psychodrama too. And so, you know... Tony is the victim of his own success. If you look back at the Prime Ministers we've had for the last 20, 30, 40 years, they've all come crashing down in public popularity. Thatcher's obviously a hugely divisive figure now. Major was pilloried by the end of his Prime Ministership, actually seen as quite a decent guy now by a lot of people. Blair, we've talked about. Brown was hugely popular, then massively unpopular. Same with Cameron, same with May. We're now seeing it with Boris Johnson. Is this a peculiarly British thing to turn on our leaders like this? Like, I mean, it was Enoch Powell who said a long time ago that all political careers end in failure. And it is really, really hard to identify a politician who goes out at their peak. It's always tempting to stay on when you're successful because you hope you'll be successful again and again and again. And I think it's probably essential to democracy that the public run out of patience with you. You know, that Margaret Thatcher outstayed her, her welcome, 10 years. Tony probably outstayed his welcome. If we didn't change prime ministers and parties, what kind of democracy would we be? So I think, in one sense, it goes with the job. I don't think if you look at France and their presidents, since the mid-60s, President Macron is only the second ever president to get a second term. So, you know, this, that, that kind of turnover there uh, uh, as well suggests there's something built in uh, that you like a leader and then you don't like a leader. Um, and I, you know, I would say it's hard to do politics in the modern period because of the multiplicity of channels, the multiplicity of forms of source of information, the higher education that the people have, half the population going to university, all much more informed and able to express their opinions. I think in a sense that makes it harder. Um, but political leadership should be hard because you're asking to be given responsibility for huge decisions. Um, all the easy stuff has been privatised. Um, all the stuff the private sector can do has been put out to them. So, yeah, you, the politicians are left with more complicated jobs like um, uh, how do you increase productivity in the long run? Um, how do you balance uh, growth between regions without reducing growth in a region that's doing really, really well? So the big issues that politicians have to deal with are big issues. And so I kind of don't think it's a flaw in our current politicians, our generation, this current generation of politicians. I don't really think it's um, a kind of British problem either. I don't think it's a tall poppy syndrome that we hate success and knock it down. I think it is, it's the nature of the job and it's quite a good thing to refresh who's at the top. But is it really healthy for the public to turn on their leaders with quite the vitriol we've seen over recent decades? Here's the journalist, Tom McTague. I don't think it's particularly healthy. I mean, I think it's healthy that we can hold our politicians in contempt and hold them accountable for decisions. Tony Blair's decision on Iraq, you know, is, I think, objectively a pretty disastrous one. 
uh, with enormous consequences. And you have to take the consequences of that in terms of popularity and all the rest. And I think Boris Johnson, being the head of the Brexit campaign, look, that clearly has uh, infuriated parts of the country. And if you go into politics, you have to take that. It's the same in other countries. I think it's the level and the consistency of animosity that they're, they're all useless, they're all awful, that I think is is not necessarily healthy. In fact, I think of Theresa May actually as one. I mean, I thought she was not really up to the job of being prime minister, but I don't think that makes her a bad person. After the Grenfell Tower catastrophe, I thought, this was an interesting question about the sort of health of a democracy. This had been an enormous structural failure, and we're still living with the failure today. It's just a straightforward disgrace, right? You know, the cladding problems that we have and the fact that people are still living in flats that they're, you know, paid good money for and they're now worthless because of the, the cladding that they had no choice over. You know, all of that is a disgrace and somebody should be held accountable for it. But I thought the way that she was almost treated as a kind of the scapegoat, the kind of the person that upon all the blame uh, could be pinned. Uh, you know, the, I remember these scenes shortly after she'd lost uh, her majority in the election, where she was just being hounded as if she was a kind of, you know, almost like a modern day witch. And I I didn't think that was healthy. But, but at the same time, I'm not sure what the answer is, because I think people are right to be not just, um, you know, disappointed, but emotionally angry about something as as awful as that. It feels to me like for each of these prime ministers that we're talking about, sort of a moment comes of a point of no return almost where the public view of them just switches. And, it you know, it was for Blair, it was obviously Iraq and for Brown, it was, well, the crash. But then the way he handled that election um, May had that moment in the election campaign where suddenly the, the wheels just fell off completely um, and so on. Do you think that's happened to Boris Johnson now? Has he has he had that moment with the Partygate scandal from which ultimately there is no coming back? Potentially, but I think what is different about this, if you go back and uh, as you've just done with those moments, you know, they, these were policy moments, right? They were they were decisions that were taken or events that happened that were disastrous in some senses. You know, you had John Major and Black Wednesday. You know, he supported ERM and and has to take the consequences for that. Thatcher, to some extent, with the poll tax, uh, Tony Blair with Iraq. Gordon Brown, clearly it wasn't his fault that the global financial crisis happened, but he was Chancellor of the Exchequer for you know, a decade, and Britain was particularly badly hit. It's very hard to escape that. And then David Cameron, Brexit, Theresa May, um, the failed election. These were all things that were decisions that they'd taken that then backfired spectacularly, and there was no there was no coming back from that. With Boris, what is so strange is that there there isn't really a policy that is driving this antagonism to him. It's not that something spectacularly bad has happened that the public have blamed him for. You know, we can say that his handling of the pandemic 
in some senses was a disaster and it would be perfectly reasonable for people to be furious with him about the numbers of deaths say or the lack of border control at certain points you know these were legitimate things but that that's not what's driving the hatred of him at the moment it's not even brexit but it's actually just a personal failure it's this sense that he took the mick out of them by having these parties It's much more, I think, like a sort of Nixonian moment, a Watergate moment, a kind of a personal failing rather than a a sort of national policy failing. But I think it comes back to this this point in a way that, that Johnson is a different kind of politician. And the thing that uh, protected him from almost any attack beforehand was this sense of humour, shambolic nature, this sense that what you were seeing was the real Boris, warts and all, all of that kind of stuff. And everyone knows, we've gone through it, that, you know, there is a certain sense of performance with Johnson. But I think it's a performance that has basically lasted his entire life so at what point does the mask mold to the face as one person put it to me once you know it's this you know i i I think it's it's both a performance and it's real but it was that that made him stand out from other politicians who people had become to think were not sincere and couldn't be trusted but it's that very thing which is turning around on him. His his uniqueness as a politician is what allowed him to rise to the top at the moment of sort of national stasis. You know, remember how bad it was during those Brexit years when nothing could get done. And it was almost like the politicians had become a joke because they couldn't do anything. So, you know, you may as well have a joker on top, see what he can do. And then when something really, really serious happens, I think it's it's that strength that's turned into a real weakness. So maybe the real reason Britain turns on its leaders is that we come to hate the things about them that we once loved. Thatcher's single-minded determination and unwaveringness drew admiration at first, but anger and hatred by the end. And Tony Blair too, a liberal interventionist to his core and one who would not be deflected from what he believed to be the right path. David Cameron was so relaxed and so effortless in his approach, but clearly a little too relaxed in the end, if you cared about Britain's future inside the EU. Theresa May's robotic, steady-as-she-goes diligence felt like a relief amid the turbulent aftermath of the Brexit vote, but proved a disaster in a general election campaign. And now we have Boris Johnson, elevated to the top by his lovable unseriousness, and then completely undone, because he ran 10 Downing Street in exactly that manner. How very Boris, in the end, to be undone by a cheese and wine party, a karaoke machine and an illicit suitcase full of booze. Sometimes the difference between a superpower and an Achilles heel is not so very obvious at all. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And why not take a look back through our past episodes too, which cover everything from the history of political scandals to the art of political drinking. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.